you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. We invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. Grab a Bible and join me in Luke chapter 3 this morning. We're going to continue this morning as we began last week talking about the adult ministry of John the Baptist and the transition from the narratives of the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus into the beginning of the adult ministries of both John the Baptist and Jesus. Like we talked about last time, the ministry of John begins with this message of repentance. John is preaching a message of repentance to the Jewish people, and that's what the angel Gabriel, remember he had told Zechariah that that's what the message of John would be. He's going to preach this message of turning hearts towards God and turning hearts towards one another. And we talked about last time how that the idea of turning and uh, changing directions is integral to the idea of repentance. It's, it is a changing of one's mind as we realize the wrongness of our path. It's a changing of our heart as we're broken by the sin of the wrongness of our life. And then it's a changing of our will as we forsake the wrong path and commit to the right path. So John preaches this message of repentance, but also it's not just a message of repentance, it's a message of baptism of repentance. And we talked about last time what that meant for the hearers of John the Baptist. In John's day, a Jew, a Jew that was baptized meant that that was not an ethnic Jew. Only Gentiles were baptized into the faith of Judaism. And so for John to preach a a message of a baptism of repentance What his hearers heard was, you must have this change of heart and you must be baptized in order to become a real Jew. You may be Jewish by your ethnicity, but only God's real real people are, uh, they are God's people by virtue of a change of heart as symbolized in this baptism of repentance. And so we talked about last time how that was probably a highly offensive message for many of the people that heard that. But nevertheless, people are responding and um, they are hearing John's message and responding to the message of being wholly dependent upon the mercy of God, that it matters for nothing who your father might be, as they might would say, our father was Abraham. John says that matters for nothing. What matters is a change of heart that you are relying totally and completely on the mercy of God. And so as John introduces through the writer Luke as he introduces to us this concept of the true children of Abraham are those who are converted by faith, those who have had a change of heart, a turning of direction. Those are the true children of Abraham, whether they may be of the Jewish ethnicity or the Gentile ethnicity. That matters for nothing. So John is introducing this concept to us. Paul is going to go on later on in the New Testament and really flesh this out for us in much more depth. For example, in Romans chapter 4, Paul will say this, that he, meaning Abraham, Abraham received the sign of circumcision 
as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So the circumcision, the mark of God's people, was something that followed Abraham's conversion. And uh, Paul will go on to say that the purpose of this was to make him, Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised. In other, in other words, the Gentiles may believe without circumcision and still be a true child of Abraham so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And he goes on to say to make him, Abraham, the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Paul is developing further this idea that John the baptizer introduces that says your earthly father matters for nothing with your standing with God. The true children of Abraham are the children by faith. He'll say to the Galatians, uh, I'm sorry, Romans 4 verse 16, Paul will go on a few verses later to say this, this is why that it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Or like he will say to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And you can hear in all those verses there, you can hear the same train of thought that John the baptizer is preaching. And so he's preaching this message, and um, his message is that you must have this change of heart, that you contribute nothing to your salvation, your heritage contributes nothing to your salvation, for, as John says, God could raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And stones would obviously contribute nothing. Likewise, you also don't contribute to your salvation. It is God who saves you as evidenced by your response of faith and your response of repentance that's symbolized in this baptism that John is performing. So what follows all of that is sort of the natural question, well, what would all this look like? What would it look like for a person to have this truly repentant heart? What would it look like for a person who is completely depending and relying on the mercy and the grace of God? What would that look like in our lives. And that's what uh, John is going to flesh out here in verses 10 through verse 20. So let's read together these verses, starting from verse 10. And the crowds asked him, okay, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptized you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John 
in prison. So as John is preaching, his preaching here is, as we would expect, very effective. The Spirit is at work, and those who are hearing John's message are being changed in their hearts. They are responding to the message, and their resulting question is, what then do I do? How does this apply to my life? Which is always a wonderful question for biblical teachers, preachers to hear. In this case, their questions are authentic and from the heart. How then does this apply to me? How does this change of heart apply to me? What does it look like for my life to be a repentant life? What does it look like for me to live in such a way that is not relying on my ethnic heritage, but instead relying wholly and completely on the mercy of God. And so John gives these examples. Certainly he gives many more examples than Luke includes. But it's interesting the examples that Luke does include. He does choose a few examples to to present to us, and it's interesting the ones that he does choose. He chooses the examples, basically two examples here, uh, the example of money and the example of sex. Those two examples are two things that, that Luke chooses to point out to us that are John's response to the question, what does it look like for my life to be relying completely on the mercy of God? And the two things he chooses to talk about are money and sex. Now, just quickly, let's see how John talks about these two issues. First of all, he says initially to the crowds or to the multitudes, your translation may say, he says to the crowds, and I take that to mean just the sort of the general audience, the average Jew would be, I guess, included in what Luke is calling the crowds. And to those, they say, what shall we do? And John answers, whoever has two tunics, share with the one who has none. And whoever has food is to share with the one who doesn't have food. So you see there the connection with money. He doesn't specifically mention money, but that's what is at issue here. Either your money or the stuff that your money buys. That uh, the love of your money, the love of your stuff is to change. Then he goes on to talk about tax collectors. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and they said, what shall we do? He said, collect no more than you're authorized to do. We, we probably are familiar at this point with tax collectors of this day. You probably have heard that tax collectors in this day were even less likable than tax collectors of our day. We could almost call them, instead of tax collectors, we could almost call them toll collectors because there wasn't necessarily an income tax or sales tax in that way. But instead, many tax collectors would, would set up a literally like a toll booth on a, on a widely used road or in a marketplace and charge a fee or a tax to use the road or to use a bridge or to, to, to go to, to market or, or uh, to sell slaves in the market or different, various different things. And the way that tax collectors work, it was, it was an ingenious system. If you, if you want to be in charge of a corrupt, tyrannical government, then this is an ingenious way to charge taxes. What would happen was that people would bid for the position of tax collector. And the highest bidder, the highest bidder would get the job. And one person, say for example, Say you might bid a uh, thousand shekels to set up your tax booth for one month on this particular road, 
and another person bids 900 shekels, another bids 800 shekels, and so you're the highest bidder, and you get the job at 1,000 shekels. You owe that money immediately, in full. You owe the full tax right then. And so you pay the full tax, and then that gives you then the authority of the Roman government to charge the tax to recollect what you have paid the Roman government and plus whatever else you can manage to collect. So typically this was a, a, a type of person that was rather forceful, rather ingenuitive maybe, uh, um, not, not particularly a kind-hearted type of person because, see, you made money by charging more than what you bought the job for. You also, in doing this, of course, carried the authority of the Roman government and so it was this really hard-nosed, tricky kind of way of knowing how much you could extort out of people and bidding for the job for something a little bit less than that and then, and then trying to get every penny that you could out of people. Again, if you, if you wanted to run a corrupt government, that's the way to collect taxes. However, if you want friends in life, that's not the way to collect taxes because obviously... This was a this was a world in which people traveled far less than they do now in, in terms of long distances. And so if you set up a tax booth on a certain road, you're likely to see the same people on a regular basis, which are the same people that you live around, the same people that you go to synagogue with, the same people that you see at the market, the same people that are probably, some of them are your family. And so your, your livelihood is depending on how much you can extort out of such people. So they were very much hated people. They, uh, like the story of Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, there was no love lost between the people and Zacchaeus, but Zacchaeus was also a very wealthy man. So he was a good tax collector by that regard, which meant that he was good at squeezing people for money. So a certain amount of animosity automatically came with the position of tax collector. So the tax collectors come to John and they're, they're hearing his message and they're believing and they're being baptized. And their question is, what do we do? And it's interesting that John doesn't say stop collecting taxes. Instead, he says, do your job fairly. Do your job legitimately. Don't collect more than you should collect. So um, that's their answer to them. Again, it's an answer closely even more closely connected to money and the love of money. One would, one would be a tax collector in these days because one loved money a lot. That's, I think, why you would go into such a profession in this day. So the, your love of money is something that must be curbed. And then verse 14, soldiers also hear and they believe and they say, what shall we do? And John answers them. He doesn't say stop being soldiers. He says, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. In other words, again, the money, the answer is connected to the love of money. Don't use your position, don't use your power over people to collect money immorally or wrongly from people. Don't let your love of money cause you to sin against others by extorting money by threats or false accusations, etc., but instead be content with your wages. Again, an answer that's closely connected to the love of money. So that's three answers there, all of them 
when in answering the question, what does it look like for my life to be a life that relies totally on the mercy of God? Three answers there that, that say, you must master the love of money in your life. Because one who is relying on the mercy of God is not one that's a slave to the love of money. So then you say, well, where's the, where's the illicit sex, the adulterous sex? That comes a, a little bit later in, in a way that's not quite as direct. If you look down to verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 21, we see here that this is, of course, Herod the Tetrarch, and he's not coming to John saying, what do I do now that I'm trusting in God? But instead, clearly we do see that John is exhorting Herod. He is, he is saying to Herod some things that he's calling Herod out for his sin, and he's pointing out some things in his life that needs to change. And one of them, he says, um, uh, I'm sorry, not verse 21, verse 19, Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by Herod, for him by Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. So, again, Herod isn't having this change of heart, but nonetheless, John is saying to him, here is what the life of a person who is trusting in God and is in relationship with God, here's what their life looks like. You need to do something about this sinful, illicit sex in your life. So we, we see here from the passage that it sort of explains to us what he's talking about. John rebukes him for Herodias, his brother's wife, it says. Now, not to go into too much de detail there, but Herodias was married, obviously, to Herod's brother. And they began having an affair. And Herodias divorced her husband in order to uh, shack up with Herod. And so obviously that was a very sinful relationship and all of Israel knew this. But apparently John the baptizer was the only one bold enough to call him out on it. Now, when I read this, it's always amazing to me to think of the boldness of John the baptizer. If you've ever been in that position to just really call people on the carpet for the sin in their life, if you've ever been in that position, then unless you're a strange person, then you would agree that's not a comfortable place to be. It's not comfortable to say to somebody, brother or sister, look, this is, this is not pleasing to God. And let me show you why. However, the nature of this sin is, is I think, even more uncomfortable. And then the fact that this is Herod the Tetrarch. And John seems to have no qualms at all about completely calling him on the carpet about his illicit relationship with his sister-in-law. So the boldness of John, but also the, the, the message there is a message that a, a person that's relying on the mercy and the grace of God is not a person that's a slave to the passions of the flesh. So those two things are sort of the key things that Luke pulls out and he wants to show Theophilus. These are two things, Theophilus, that the person relying on the mercy of God, these are two things that this person shows in their life. They, shows, they, they show that they battle against the love of money and they battle against the passions of the flesh. Two sins that the Scriptures will constantly hold out to us. For example, uh, Hebrews 13, verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Same sort of thing is repeated many times in the New Testament. Or 1 Thessalonians 4, each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passions of the lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So we see 
that this these are two sins that the New Testament will sort of hold out to us in a clearer, more regular way than many of the other sins that we as Christ followers are to do battle with. And I think the reason that, that these are the two things that really get a lot of attention in, in the New Testament, I think for a lot of reasons. Well, first of all, I think that the love of money and the passions of the flesh are two sins that the fallen human battles with on this kind of universal level. In other words, this this applies to everyone. Everyone can identify with these two things. Everyone can identify with battling the passions of the flesh. Whether they show up in temptations to adulterous sex or just other passions that aren't even related to sexual relations. We can all identify with battling against the passions of the flesh. And we can also identify with battling against the love of money. Some of us battle that in other ways. Not everybody battles the love of money in, in this direct way in which we find ourselves lusting av- after money or lusting after new things. A lot of us do, but sometimes we don't. But that doesn't mean that, that all of us doesn't battle the love of money. Me, for example, I'll take myself as a, as a personal example. I don't necessarily battle in my heart against the lust to buy new things. I'm like everybody. I, sometimes I'll, I, I do like that, and sometimes I have to battle that. But that's not a dominant battle of my life. Oftentimes, for me, a greater battle is not lusting after new things, but lusting after the security that I think money can provide the security that a 401k can provide the 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 thought in my mind that okay i'm i'm okay when later on when i get older and health is not so good i've got a nest egg and and that's security that's comfort that is a temptation for me to trust less in the providence of god and more in the balance of my 401k right and so that's still the love of money it doesn't show up in new shiny sports cars necessarily, but that's still the same thing. And all of us, that's a universal kind of battle. In, so, in one way or another, you battle the love of money and you battle the passion of flesh. And so I think Luke holds these out. He chooses these two as examples that all of us can identify with. But also, they, I think these are two examples that are the most difficult for the Christ follower to have victory over. These are two sins that are deeply, deeply ingrained into our fallen nature. It is deep within us as fallen people, the desire, the temptation to love stuff and to pursue the passions of the flesh. And I think victory over those two areas in our life are can oftentimes be the slowest coming victory, the hardest fought victory. I think that those are, are two things that that the Christ follower will, will struggle with, by and large, their entire life. So I think those are two reasons why those are held out to us as examples, the love of money and the love of sex. So it, certainly that's not the only things that, that John pointed out, but two things that he does point out. Now, I also want to take a look quickly at the groups of people that are asking the questions. 
Because, again, Luke chooses, certainly more people than this were asking John questions. How is it that this applies to my life? But Luke chooses these three specific groups of people. One, he chooses the crowds. And again, I'm going to take that to mean just the generic Jew that was listening to John's message. The average Jewish person listening to his message. So he chooses the crowd. And then secondly, he chooses tax collectors. And then thirdly, he chooses soldiers. And there seems to be a connection as to why he chooses these three. And perhaps the most obvious connection is that these three people, these three groups of people hate each other. The, the average Jewish person of John's day had no love loss between themselves and tax collectors as well as from between themselves and soldiers. Now, when he talks about soldiers here, we don't know for sure, but most scholars would, would agree that he probably doesn't mean Roman soldiers. He probably means Jewish soldiers. There were, in this time, there were Jews that were employed by the Roman government as a type of soldier. They weren't the Roman soldiers, so to speak, but they were employed by the Roman government to help keep order in certain ways to perform certain soldiering type of civil duties. And so they were employed by the Roman government to do a job of, in essence, controlling the Jewish people. That's, in essence, the bottom line of what they were doing. They were paid by the Romans to help maintain order over the Jewish people. So there was no love loss between them. I would go so far as to say that probably the average Jewish person had more disdain for the fellow Jew who was working for the Romans to keep order over the other Jews, probably more disdain for them than the actual Roman soldiers. And then, of course, we talked earlier about tax collectors. So this seems to me to be three groups that hate each other. Luke holds these out as examples, and I think the reason is is because, I don't know, I, I kind of picture in my mind this image, they're out in the desert and they're, they're by the Jordan River. And I just picture all these different groups of people here listening to John, hearing his message, receiving it, being baptized, and then just all of a sudden there's this new community. Because that's what they are now. If these soldiers and these tax collectors and people in the crowd, if they have believed and been baptized. There's a new community has been created, the community of God. And so now there is a unity there that wasn't there before. And it's a unity of people that in any other situation would never have been in the same room together voluntarily. And I think one of the things that Luke wants Theophilus to see is this also is what happens when one relies on the mercy of God for God's favor. One of the, one of the fruits that is in keeping with repentance is the fruit of unity. And so Luke wants Theophilus to see, here are people, by the way, some of them are people that you can relate with. Theophilus, Theophilus is a Roman. It's likely that Theophilus was a Roman official. So he can certainly relate to tax collectors and soldiers. 
And Luke shows him this picture that you, Theophilus, are very, very different from the people living in Jerusalem in many, many ways. But if you too are trusting in the mercy of God, then there is a unity between yourself and those people that otherwise you would you would feel like you had nothing in common with. So these people are coming and they are repenting. They are being baptized in this baptism of repentance. They are committing in their hearts to turn from their, their path of loving money or whatever path may, they may be on. They're committing to turn from that and turn to the path of, of righteousness. And as a result, there's unity. And by the way, whenever we see unity in God's people, we also see the same thing. We also see people who are repenting and turning from their paths of wrongness. We see people turning from the love of money. We see people turning from the passions of the flesh. And we see unity. And whenever we see the body of Christ that is struggling with unity, I assure you, we can look long enough and we will find people who are not battling against the passions of the flesh or people who are not battling against the love of money. Unity and repentance go together hand in hand here. And when God's people are walking in a lifestyle of repentance, then the result is this unity that we see here in the desert. When they're not, then the result is always broken unity. So I think Luke wants Theophilus to relate really well to what he's seeing here. People trusting in the mercy of God and a whole new community is created. I want to just really quickly take a look at what, first of all, what would be I would consider the main point of this section. And the main point, I think, jumps out at us several times. We've talked about it before. From verse 11, if you have two tunics, share with the one who has none. If you have food, share it. Tax collectors, don't collect more than you need. Soldiers, don't extort. In other words, the overarching point here is that the person who is trusting in the mercy of God is a person who will view their possessions differently. They will view their stuff in a whole different way. They will view their stuff, their things, their possessions, as no longer being the delight of their heart, no longer being the object of, of life which they pursue, but instead they will, they will see things differently now. This is a theme that Luke is going to hammer into the reader from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 24. It's the theme, one of the themes that a follower of Christ has a totally, radically different opinion of things. We see it show up perhaps most clearly in John, I'm sorry, Luke 12, verse 34. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here we see a picture of people whose treasure is now changed. Their treasure used to be stuff. Now their treasure is God. And they say, what shall we do? John says, live it out. Live out this new treasure that you have. But we see, this, we see the same theme Throughout, from chapter 6, verse 30. Here's a, just a few examples. Chapter 6, verse 30. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, don't demand them back. 12, verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, 
with a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail, where thief, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. 18 verse 22, Jesus heard this and he said, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. No other gospel writer hammers this theme home as much as Luke does. The theme of the person who has, who has had a heart change towards God is a person that now views their stuff differently. I tend to think of it in terms of, you know how the Bible tells us that if, if we have received forgiveness from God, we will be forgiving people. If we have received mercy from God, we will be people of mercy. That in other words, what we receive from God is what we tend to give others in our life. I think it's helpful to think of generosity with our stuff in terms of mercy. John is saying to, to the tax collector, to the soldier, to the crowds, he's saying, be merciful with your money. Have mercy on the one with no tunic and use your money to have mercy on them. Have mercy on the one who owes you taxes and use your position, use your money to have mercy on them. Or use, use your food to have mercy on those who have no food. Those who have received this type of mercy from God are quick to give to others. Because generosity is really, it's really, as, as the scriptures I think hold out to us, it is a very clear indicator of our heart condition. Those who are in relationship with the King of Kings will have hearts that, that are generous. This is why you will never come to the Garden Fellowship and hear me preach a message about how you need to tithe. Because generosity towards God, the Scriptures teach us, is a heart matter. So what we preach to is the heart matter. And as the New Testament holds out to us, that's just an indication. You, what you do with your money is just an outward indication of what God has done in here. And that's what Luke is going to show us with great clarity. People, the way we use our individual money is a huge indicator of our hearts. But it's also true for a church. A church shows its heart by how it handles its stuff too, its possessions as well. When, when we are, as recipients of God's mercy, quick to give mercy, and even quick to do it in ways that maybe, maybe we are generous to a point that if, if God doesn't show up and fill up what's lacking there, then we're going to be in trouble. When we, when, as a people, when we do that, I think that we're just giving God a blank check to act in our lives. Just, and we're just saying to God, God, I'm just giving you all the opportunity you want to show up in amazing ways. Whereas on the other side of it, if, if we're always sort of more tight-fisted with our stuff and you know, maybe we give to, to the kingdom of God, but we don't ever do it radically, then maybe we're just taking away opportunities for God to do amazing things. How we treat our stuff, there's a reason why the New Testament harps on it. And it's, and it's not because God is money hungry. The New Testament harps on it because it is perhaps the clearest way for you to see where your heart is. People in relationship with Jesus, a radically merciful 
Savior, themselves will also be merciful with their stuff. And then just one final quick point. I want to point out verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Of course, Luke uses good news, the word that we get our word gospel from. We know that's what gospel is, good news. It says, John preached the gospel. John preached good news. And I want to just pause for a minute and say, I thought all that John preached was repentance and judgment and winnowing forks in his hand and wrath is coming. Repent, you brood of vipers. Why does Luke say that he preached good news? Because we don't usually associate good news with wrath is coming, you better watch out. I want to encourage you to not not limit your idea of the good news of Jesus Christ. Don't be too limiting in what you define that to be. Sometimes I think we, we think that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is... Jesus died on a cross for your sins. He rose from the dead. And so faith in Him gives you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that, of course, is the good news of Jesus. But in your mind, don't limit that to all of the good news. The wrath of God is also good news. Now that sounds kind of strange, but here's here's what I mean when I say that. When we tell people of the coming wrath of God, just as John does, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee? His winnowing fork is in his hand. When we tell people the wrath of God, we are telling them good news. We would be telling them bad news if we would say the wrath of God is coming. There's nothing you can do about it. That would be very bad news. But we're telling people good news. I like to think of this analogy that that helps me to to process that. When Luke says that John preached the good news, I think of it like this. I think of it like falling asleep in, say, a hotel, a place where you don't easily necessarily know the quick way out. And the place catches on fire in the middle of the night. And somebody shakes you awake and says, the hotel is on fire. Now, that's not good news. The hotel being on fire is not good news. But they shake you awake and they say, the hotel is on fire. Follow me. The hotel is on fire. In and of itself is not good news. But it is good news when that's how somebody wakes you up. When somebody wakes you up to say, this place is burning down. Follow me. I will get you out. Is that not good news? And that's what John is preaching. The place is on fire. The fire is coming. Follow me. I will show you how to get out. And in that sense, every aspect of the message of Christ is good news, whether it's wrath is coming, Jesus died for your sins because whenever that message of wrath comes, it always comes with the way out. We hope you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through
loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you are blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. 